0: You're in with the ghost of radio. Welcome back to this, our shared podcast devoted to the study, criticism, and appreciation of mid-century horror radio. What else is there to do in this wide world? But to gather around this cauldron each week and pull out an episode at random for us to go off and listen to in our own ways, means, and times, and then come back here and devote our time together to listening to some clips, discussing, making sense, and joying. That's what we do, and we do it so well. Why not do it now? Oh, this, halfway through Season 7, three and one-half human years into this podcast, we are doing something for the very first time. Don't say... We never mixed it up. We're not going to listen to an episode of radio today. We are going to focus on the television. What? We are. (laughs) There's no place for you to go except to a thing you may have heard of called YouTube. It's a little corner of the internet where they show some videos. And if you go to YouTube and you type in lights out TV show. You are going to come up with something that your ghost has gestured to in the past. In the past, I've mentioned that when Willis Cooper, the beloved writer, director, producer, creator of the original Lights Out Everybody, the second greatest mid-century horror program of all, and the writer, producer, director, creator of Quiet, Please, a few years later, the greatest of all mid-century horror radio series. Just take a pause there on his achievement. Okay, moment of grateful silence. When that man concluded the run of Quiet, Please in 1949, it was in part because he was willing to make the jump to television, which was a bigger deal than most people who weren't ghosting around at the time recall. Most people think, well, TV, that really started taking off in the 50s, right? Maybe like the mid-50s. No, it was directly after the war. And in fact, war production interrupting commercial good production was bemoaned by many Americans because it made TVs impossible to get people had just been turning the corner into wanting televisions when the war came along to make that impossible. And so there was a lot of TV as early as 1946. I've been doing a little fascinating ghosting about this. Very, very, very little of it has been preserved or is currently missing. It's somewhere, but we don't know where. The years 46 to 49 in TV are kind of a lost zone. But Willis Cooper was moving in that area, and he worked on a few TV shows. He wanted to bring Lights Out to TV. Now, we have scoffed and scoffed at that. How could you bring the best of mid-century horror radio to television? So much of it relies on not seeing anything. Think of your favorite episodes of Lights Out. They rely on being radio shows. It's not, oh, I wish we could tell this story some other way, but radio's all we have. They were born radio, and that's how they need to be. Well, Willis Cooper understood that, and he actually never tried to recreate a Lights Out or a Quiet Please episode on TV, as far as we know. As far as we know. You know, we don't have everything. So, I decided, why don't I ghost around and see what this lights-out TV show was that seemed to have no involvement, really, of Willis Cooper. He was not involved in this show. It was created by other people. It didn't use the music. It didn't use the setup. It did reuse a couple of plots. And one plot was actually written. By Willis Cooper, maybe. He always denied it. He denied that he ever touched the TV show of Lights Out. He is claimed as the writer for one episode, but that may be because it's an adaptation of one of his radio stories. Long story short, we are going to do a quick investigation of Lights Out, the TV series. You can find on this YouTube channel, I think from 1949 to 52, they have what, 10 or 12 episodes? and you can watch them and see for yourself. But I'm going to give you a bit of a primer because I have watched them all, and I come away with things to share. So there are no audio clips. I'm sorry, but that's not how YouTube works. And I'm not going to make it do anything it doesn't want to do. You're going to have to just accept my brief sketch of the top episodes of this TV series. All right, first we have The Martian Eyes. The Martian Eyes was from October 30th, 1950. It starred Burgess Meredith, and it was written by George Lefferts. It is very well done. It's one of those stories where you can't quite decide whether you should be feeling menaced by a certain character or not, and not in a cheap, crappy way where you are constantly being threatened and you have reason to be fearful, but then you're told, oh, no, don't worry about it. No, this is really trying to understand a situation and just wondering, like, is this really okay or not? And oh, it's not okay at the end. It has an ending. I'm doing a little bit of spoiling. You know that I always do. If you want to go watch The Martian Eyes first and then come back here, you can. The ending definitely inspired the ending of Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up on The Twilight Zone, one of its best, best episodes from 1961, 11 years later. That Twilight Zone episode is the same way. You feel rising tension and uneasiness, but you don't know if you should. You just don't know if you're being silly. Oh, in the end, you're not. So that's the Martian eyes. And like all of these episodes, it really tries to be very inventive with its camera work. Now, of course, just like radio shows are often not well-preserved and the audio is not great, these TV shows are not well-preserved and the picture can be blurry, the sound can be not great, there are a few jumps and skips, but you can tell that they were being innovative you have to wonder why TV that rose to the ascendancy in the 50s was so much less good than this. Why couldn't this have set the pace? I don't know why everybody else wasn't following their example. Probably because it was expensive. You know, it was expensive to get fancy camera work and special effects. So other places just didn't do it. All right, let's move on to number two. Dead Man's Coat. If you want to go watch it first, go watch it. It's from May Fourteenth, 1951. Stars Basil Rathbone, a pretty big star. And this is the one that is credited with Willis Cooper as the writer. It is the interesting story of an abusive, horrible, rich man who abuses his manservant. Yes, we still have that meme going on. Manservant played by Basil Rathbone. And the tables are turned in the most gruesome way. And yes, it does involve a mausoleum and a file and a weapon I won't mention at the very end. Again, it's the cask of Amontillado situation where you know, you know halfway through that maybe the tables are going to turn, but you aren't prepared for exactly how it plays out. And it leaves you extremely spooked out. It leaves you spooked out, even though if I just recounted the entire end of the plot, you'd say, yeah, okay, you have to watch it. Just like sometimes you have to listen. All right, next we have something called The Pattern. From May 28, 1951, written by Ira Levin. The Pattern. Very interesting story about a man recounting to his psychiatrist that when he was serving in the war, he overheard three people, two men and a woman, I think in France, French people, plotting to destroy his army barracks, the one he was staying in. And he overheard the whole thing, and then he just froze. He froze up. And by the time, you know, they're laying the wires around him, it was too late, he felt, to jump out and stop them too late to go warn anybody. And the barracks are blown up, and hundreds of men die. And he is haunted by this, and he sees these three people wherever he goes. He keeps seeing them. And oh, they do turn up at the end. They turn up in the least expected way at the moment where you think he's been saved. He is not. It's well-done story of being tormented, by a memory. And he is to blame. Why did he just stand there and not do anything? Why? He admits, I was afraid. There were three of them. There was one of me. If I had stepped out at that moment and confronted them, they would have killed me. So I thought, well, I'll just wait until they're gone, and then I'll run back to the barracks. He knew that that wouldn't work. He knew if he stood there and waited till they were done wiring the place with explosives. So, You're in that situation of wondering if you should be rooting for somebody. Wondering if you should be rooting for them at all. Maybe not that guy. We move now to the most astounding one in many ways. Remember, our original complaint was, how can you recreate the things that were on the radio on TV? And if ever there were an episode, I would have thought that posed an insurmountable barrier for. It would be Across the Gap, written by Arch Obler for Lights Out Radio. Remember that one? Remember how awesome it was? Where the three people, the American man, the British woman, and the French man are driving through the French countryside... And they accidentally go off the road, down a ditch, and when they recover their consciousness, they are back in the last ice age. And there's some cro magnon Neanderthal human who does something of unspeakable horror to those men. That's the one they do. It is called And Adam Begot. July 2nd, 1951. This one is credited... The writer is supposedly Arch Obler. This must be because they adapted his story. They actually dramatize this, and they do it well. I was astounded when I realized it. I'm watching along the first few minutes. I'm like, hmm, hey, this is kind of reminding me of, of Across the Gap. Are you kidding me? They did it. They did it amazingly well. It isn't just that they were able to dramatize it visually. They did a fantastic job. And Adam begot. It was such a surprise because, you know, I'm hitting the highlights for you. So I've what talked about four episodes now. There were plenty that weren't so great. There were a lot of them that were just kind of boring. So to have this one suddenly crop up, really well done. It does beg the question, though, why the TV show did not, would not, ever, ever reference the radio show. They did not use the same gong. They didn't have the same intro. They had a different host, very different in every way. But it was called Lights Out. Why? Maybe Willis Cooper or Arch Obler really did not want to be involved, and so they just said, skip it. We'll capitalize on the name. We will redo some of their shows, but it's not going to be exactly the same thing. Just like the Twilight Zone stole, just stole a lot of its stories from radio. This TV TV show, it is a TV story, but this TV show took a lot of Lights Out episodes, used the name. For whatever reason, it's confusing. If Willis Cooper was really so against being involved with the show, why didn't he stop them from using the name? Maybe we will never know. Maybe I will have to ghost back in time someday. If I have time, I'll do it. All right, next we have The Man with the Watch from August thirteenth, 1951, written by Sam Merwin Jr. The Man with the Watch. This is not based on a radio story so far as I know very, very inventive story, where you keep hearing that young people are disappearing in a city. They're just disappearing, all these happy young people in their teens. And then you meet the man who seems to be the evil force at work, and you get the feeling he's supernatural in some way, and you're really afraid of him. Until you learn things that make you think maybe you should be on his side. Maybe it doesn't matter whether you're on his side or not is how the story ends, because he's going to do what he's going to do. And there's no way anyone's going to be able to stop him. You are really left of two minds with this story. And it's really well done and very original. I cannot, off the top of my ghosting, think of another plot that was exactly like The Man with the Watch. All right, then we've got Dark Image from October 8, 1951 by John McGreevy. It's really, really well done visual effects. A young woman, we've seen this before in the radio, a young woman, a newlywed, traveling on the train with her husband, suddenly learned something about him that she never, ever knew. Not precisely, but they do start talking about his former significant other, who is dead now, and the young bride is afraid that if they go back to live in that house in you know, a Rebecca style, she's going to be haunting the place. She is haunting the place via a mirror, and they do a really, really good, scary, interesting job with that visual effect. You don't watch it and think, wow, that's pretty good for 1951. You watch it and think, oh, wow, that is cool. And once it seems like the tables are turned, and the otherworldly specter woman has won, oh, tables go right back around in a way you don't expect. Very interesting. Next, we have one called I Spy from October 15th, 1951, written by Jerry Morrison. And this one features two elderly people, a brother and sister, who are immediately so frightening, so very scary from almost the first minute that you are seriously on edge before the alleged action of the show even starts. And I will give you one example. They are talking together, and he says, I'm going to go to the market, and I'm going to get some things. I saved up some of last week's money so we can afford it. And she says to him, oh, I've told you not to save up money. It gets moldy. You know instantly in that moment what that something is up. What do you mean it gets moldy? What are they using that they call money? I perhaps can't do it justice, but when I heard her say that line, Oh, I've told you not to save up money, it just gets moldy. Like, oh, if ever there were an instant window into someone whose head is not right. And they have a third party enter the house and they take her prisoner, and it is scary because you find out what they did to the last person they took prisoner in their house. The only downfall of it is that the young woman who comes into the house is uh, super weak, <laughs> I would have liked for a stronger reaction from her, but you never thought that you could be so afraid of two elderly people as you are in I Spy. Now we get into a Confusion and A-puzzlement, December 10th, 1951, episode called The Angry Birds, written by A.J. Russell. This is the end of 1951. See if this plot sounds familiar to you. Birds seem like they're starting to be louder and that they're massing around this little seaside coastal town. And when a woman goes outside, she's forced back inside because the birds mass and they attack her and they throw themselves at her cottage. The birds, the angry birds. This is the Daphne du Maurier story, The Birds, which we covered last season. She published that in 1952. This was presented on TV in 1951. The author is credited as A.J. Russell. What is going on here? Who was zooming who? Who wore it first? Was this her story? Did she publish it somehow, some snippet? It? Did he somehow know and he riffed on it? Or is it the other way around? Did she see this and she riffed on it to create her story because they are different? In this remarkable TV episode, The Angry Birds, they focus all of their aggression on one person in what turns out to be a very horrible way. And this person is deemed as deserving the trouble she gets. And so the person who could save her decides to leave her to a slow and terrible death. So it's not like Du Maurier's The Birds, where this is an unending attack on all humanity and an end-of-the-world story. In The Angry Birds, it's the end of this woman's story, but not the whole world. I looked, I ghosted everywhere to see what kind of connection there could be, but I maybe ghosted one site on the internet that even knew about this TV episode. Who copied who? We can keep wondering while we discuss perchance to dream. December 17th, 1951, written by Robert Calvar. There is a Twilight episode by the same exact name from 1959, um, eight years later, the exact same title. They have the same rough outline. A man is at his psychiatrist trying to explain a a. Re- recurring problem. So in the Twilight Zone episode, it's that a man keeps picturing a woman who is obviously fatal to him somehow. And he's afraid to go to sleep, because every time he goes to sleep, he dreams about her, and he's afraid he's going to die in his sleep. In this radio episode, which I actually like better, I think it's better than The Twilight Zone, a writer picks up you know, some magazine of short stories and reads like word for word his own story that he never published. He wrote it, but he never published it. He looks up the author. He goes to see him. He finds that the author is living in an apartment building that he used to live in and has a wife who's a woman that he likes. This guy is some kind of doppelganger for him. And so everything that the main character Dreams up like he dreamt up the story happens for this other man. So if he dreams the story, the other man writes it. He asks him at one point, Was it hard to write the story? And the guy said, No, it's like I just sat down and it just poured out of me like it came from somewhere else. His wife, I think it's that she reminds the main guy of a woman he used to like. He's dreamt about her, dreamt about being married to her. Okay, so he starts to have a dream that this guy dies in an elevator crash. And so he goes to him and he begs him, don't go to work today, don't go. You're going to die in an elevator crash. The guy doesn't believe him, of course. He storms out, says, you're nuts. And the wife is worried, so the wife and the hero follow him. And yeah, he dies in an elevator crash. I ruined it for you there. But you can still watch it and appreciate, perchance, to dream obviously seen by whoever wrote the Twilight Zone episode, took the title, changed the premise. I like this one better. I think it's better. Now, finally, our last one is called The Upstairs Floor. It ran April 10th, 1952, and it was written by Lucille Fletcher, who we have listened to many times. She wrote a hundred stories for the radio for many different series, including this story a few times for the Columbia Workshop, And for suspense, in 1945, it aired as The Furnished Floor. It's a great story about a young man who rented rooms in a boarding house or something, and his young wife died tragically. And so he moved out, but oh, suddenly he reappears, and he's moving back in, and he's moving back in with all of their original furniture, All of her clothes, all of their pots and pans, the records, the piano, all of it, put back exactly the way it was. And he's always locking the door so that the woman who runs the boarding house can't go up there. They're good friends. He loves her. She loves him. But she can't go up there. We know, even as we're listening, like, oh, uh, is it that he has lost his mind from grief and he thinks that he can conjure his wife back up? Or is it that he can conjure his wife back up? And what will that be like? He keeps saying, as soon as he has everything back the way it was, she'll return. What will come back? What kind of specter? What kind of wraith? We are with the um, woman who runs the place in fearing the return of this young woman who she had loved. It has a much better ending on the radio go listen to Suspense, The Furnished Floor, 1945. The end of this is more about the psychological trauma between the widow and the woman who runs the boarding house. And they decide not to go down the supernatural avenue with it. It's a mistake. They should have. But again, it's interesting to see a show that you really enjoyed on the radio, performed on TV, and they do a great job up until the end. And it's a shame because it's one episode where you're thinking, "Ooh, I would like a visual on this. I really would like a visual. I want to see what that wife looks like when she's conjured back from the dead. I want to see it. You don't get to, I will just tell you that right now. Don't tune in to the upstairs floor, hoping that you're going to see that. All right, I have run through many episodes for you. These are the highlights of a remarkable series. You find it on YouTube. You had to listen to me talking the whole time, which is not ideal. It's not what anybody really wants to have happen. But I'd say once every three and a half years, maybe this is what I'll do. You never know. You have to mix things up just every so often. Whether you are in Calumet, Winnipeg, Perth, or Jamestown. So, until the time that we are back to normal and listening to the radio, and nobody has to know about this little diversion into television of all things, go your way this week. Be safe, be happy, and I'll see you soon.